If you'll go ahead and take your Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis 25, we're going to be uh, shifting today, um, transitioning from, from the, the, the main uh, stage player of the last several weeks of Abraham on into what holds in the future. And as you're turning, let me uh, just remind you of a couple of things that are coming up here in the next few weeks that we don't want you to miss out on. We want you to be a part of and excited to be a part of it. And that's as we're getting geared up, ready for Resurrection Weekend. We are uh, four weeks away from Resurrection Sunday, where we will celebrate that our Savior rose. We, we celebrate that every Sunday but a specific time uh, that we will look in uh, on April 21st at Resurrection Sunday. So next Saturday, we're having, you'll see there in your bulletin, we're having a spruce up for spring. There are a lot of things we want to take care of around the ground, some pressure washing, um, some, uh, uh, some cleanup, some getting, getting ready, um, maybe depollinating because I know all of your cars are bright yellow today um, uh, after these last few days. Man, we've had a whole week of sunshine. Isn't that great? That's like the first time in like since like 1992 that that's happened. Um, but uh, so we'll have that uh, next Saturday starting at nine o'clock. Now, I know you're sitting there thinking, okay, I can't run a pressure washer. I might be somewhat limited. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be having an extravaganza where we're going to invite kids from all over Fairburn through our schools and everywhere to come and pick up candy filled Easter eggs. And we need people to put the candy in the eggs. So you can come next Saturday and we've got candy, we've got eggs, we need more. So please bring that stuff with you. But just join us for a time where you can sit and get to know people, talk with people and just put pieces of candy in plastic eggs. It's that simple. And then on August, the, uh, August, wow, man, I skipped all oh, half of a year. On April the 6th, we're <laughs> all, all, my, all my teachers in the crowd are going, no, don't skip the summer. We need it. Um, so so um, on April, April the 6th, we're going to have an opportunity where we're going to get into a couple of neighborhoods um, with some flyers, some postcards, advertising about our extravaganza, but also our Resurrection Weekend services. Because on Easter Sunday, we're going to have a sunrise at 7 o'clock. It's going to be followed by a pancake breakfast put on by our youth. And then we're going to just, we're asking you just to bring people, as many people as you can for, for Bible study and for, for church that morning as we celebrate the resurrected King. Man, the next few weeks are going to be fast. Fast-paced, they're going to be exciting, and we are gearing up to make an impact in Fairburn with the gospel of Jesus Christ leading up to Easter. So let's look together, if we can, at, uh, uh, at chapter 25 of the book of Genesis. I don't know why I almost said Ephesians. We haven't been in Ephesians in a while. Um, but the chapter 25 of the book of Genesis... And I'm going to read the whole chapter, so I'm going to let you sit because it's uh, uh, 30-something verses and uh, I don't want your legs to give out just yet. So here we go, Genesis chapter 25. Abraham had taken another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore to him Zimran, Jokshan, Maiden, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. Dedan's sons were Asherim, Letushim, and Lemumim. I am glad we don't name our kids this anymore. And Midian's sons were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Eldah. And these were the sons of Keturah. Abraham had given everything he owned to Isaac, but Abraham also gave gifts to the sons of his concubine, and while he was still alive, sent them eastward away from his son Isaac to the land of the east, that is Assyria. And this is the length of Abraham's life, 175 years. He took his last breath and died at a good old age, and uh, old and contented, and was gathered to his people. 
His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre, in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hethite. This was the field that Abraham had bought from the Hethites. Abraham was buried there with his wife, Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who lived near Be'er Lahai Roi. These are the family records of Abraham's son Ishmael, whom Hagar, the Egyptian Sarah's handmaid, bore to Abraham. These are the names of Ishmael's sons. Their names, according to the family records, are Nebaioth, Ishmael's firstborn, then Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Dumah, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedimah. These are Ishmael's sons, and they are, excuse me, and these are their names by their settlements and encampments, 12 leaders of their clans. This is the length of Ishmael's life, 137 years. He took his last breath and died and was gathered to his people. And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite of Egypt, as you go towards Ashur, and he stayed near all of his relatives. These are the family records of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took his wife, Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. She was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. But the children inside her struggled with each other. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When her time had come to give birth, there were indeed twins inside of her womb. The first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out grasping Esau's heel with his hand, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter and an outdoorsman, and Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once Jacob was cooking a stew, and, excuse me, once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came out from the field exhausted, and he said to Jacob, "Let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted." And that's why he was also named Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. (laughs) Look, said Esau, I am about to die. So what good is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me first. So Esau swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. And Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up and went away. And Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray together. Lord, as we look at your word, we look at narrative of life. We look at a very fruitful family. We look at a family with concerns and issues. And we look at ourselves. And and Lord, as we look, we ask that you would help us to see your promise. that That we'd be able to see your hand at work in our lives. But Lord, that also we would see that you will use us, even us to bring glory to your great name. Lord, we love you. Give us hope today. Give us ears to hear. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Man, what a story, right? Some of you are familiar with this. And 
and, and have heard of Esau and Jacob and, and a little bit about Isaac. And, and we're getting into this passage of scripture. And as I mentioned, we're transitioning. Last week, we talked about Sarah, the mother of Isaac, the wife of Abraham. She had passed on. She had already died. She, that, that chapter of, of God's providence for this line ha, has come and it is closed. And now it's Abraham's turn at 175 years old. Now, Remember, it said there at the very beginning that he took another wife after Sarah died. I mean, when Sarah passed away, he was like 137 years old. And he got remarried. Yeah. Some of you single people, there's hope for you. 137, he took another. Not only did he take another wife, he had a few more kids. But what we see is how God in the life of Abraham, blessed him just as he promised he would. You remember the promise that God made? I will make a great nation out of you. Your family will be so blessed. Go ahead and start counting the stars. Start counting the dust of the earth. Start looking and seeing exactly what's out there. And if you can number it, that's the number of your family. And Abraham's looking with faith, thinking, okay, I don't have a son yet. I'm already in my 70s. I don't have a son yet, but I I believe God. And God credited him as righteousness. And we know the story of Isaac. We know how Isaac got here. We know about about Ishmael. We know know all the the ins and outs because we've been looking at that these last several weeks. And we get here to Genesis chapter 25 and we see that God blesses Abraham just like he promised that he would. Because our God is faithful. He is faithful to us even if we are faithless in some of our action and activity. So here we go with Abraham. He he is 137 years old or so, gets remarried, and he has more children. And at the age of 175, he dies. It says he died in an old age and he was content. I tell you what. If you're 175 years old and you're still alive and kicking, you better be content. (laughs) And it says that his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, took care of him. Even though Isaac was the favored son, the son of promise, Because Abraham had rested in the faith that he had that God was his provider, that God was his shield, that God was as good of a God as could possibly be imagined and even beyond, his son Ishmael. His son Ishmael is there even at the end. And I love what it says in verse 11. It says that Isaac himself was dwelling at Be'er Lahai Roi. We've seen that already. If you flip back over to Genesis chapter 16, you'll see in Genesis 16 the story of how Ishmael came to be. Sarah was barren. She wasn't having any children. And she knew that Abraham was supposed to have a son. So she gave her handmaid, her handservant, her maidservant, Hagar, to, it, to Abraham to maybe get a son from her. That's backwards. That doesn't work that way. But that's what she did. And in becoming pregnant, an issue arose between Sarah and between Hagar. Not surprised by that. And Hagar flees. 
And she's in the wilderness. And it's by this well at Be'er Lahai Roai that she hears the voice of the Lord saying, where are you going? What are you doing? And in that place, God makes a promise to Hagar. Your son will be a mighty nation. Yeah, he's going to be a tough guy. Yeah, he's not going to get along well. But he is going to be uh, the, the father of a mighty nation in and of himself. And she says, you are the God who sees. You are the God who hears. And in this place, Be'er Lahai Roai, I know that you are a God who sees my affliction. So she named her son Ishmael, God hears, or God has heard my cry. And there's Ishmael, son of Isaac, with 12 sons of his own. In the midst of everything, for 99 years, Abraham waited for this promised son to come and he arrives as Isaac. He's tested, offers him as a sacrifice and God brings him to the point where now he can rest contented. He passes on knowing God has fulfilled his promise to me because God is faithful. God is faithful. And the baton gets passed to Isaac. And it says that Isaac was 40 years old when he took his wife, Rebekah. We looked at this last week and God providing a wife because the promise of the Messiah, the Redeemer, was to come through the seed of the woman. So a woman was needed, a particular wife was needed for Isaac in order to carry this promise. And it was Rebekah. And at the age of 40, he becomes a married man. And it says there that um, he prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. He prayed for her. I know Isaac struggled. Here's how I know Isaac struggled. He was 60 when the twins were born. For 20 years, knowing that the pressure of the weight of the child to carry on the promise was on his shoulder. Let's do the math here just a little bit. Isaac's born when Abraham is 99. So Abraham is 139 when Rebekah enters the picture. And he is 169, excuse me, 100, and, let me do my math, sorry. He's 159, because 20 plus 39 is 59, when the twins come into being. Look at that promised blessing of God. Not only did Abraham see the son that was promised, he saw the sons of the son that would carry on the promise. But for those 20 years, dads, we're really good at reminding our kids of what they're supposed to do and what they're supposed to become. And I, I'm, I'm taking a little, little license, a little liberty here, but I can see... Abraham, and even though he's got these other children that are being born from this other wife, when are you going to give me some grandkids, Isaac? You know, I'm not getting any younger. I'm 150 now. 
God's already said the span of life is 120. I'm beating the odds. Where are my grand boys? Where are the grand? You remember the promise. But Isaac is blessed with these two sons. Isaac faces a, an insurmountable problem. My wife cannot have children. But I know the God who gives children. I know the God that brought me into this world when my mama was 90. I know the God that closed up all the wombs in Gerar because my daddy did something he wasn't supposed to do and gave my mama to the king because he didn't want to die. But as soon as God delivered them, he opened up and gave children in Gerar. I know this God. And so it says that he prayed to the Lord because his wife was childless. Can I tell you that there's no problem too big for God? There is nothing that you face that is too big for God. You want to see a problem? Here's a man that has the promise that God's going to bless the entire world through his family with no kids, trying to have kids, and God answers. It says there, the Lord was receptive to his prayer, and his wife, Rebecca, conceived. The Lord heard. This same God heard. That does not mean that we can say, well, whatever I pray, God's just going to hear and give to me. Look at James says, you ask, you don't receive because that what you've asked for, you ask for out of selfish ambition and selfish motive. You're going to use it for yourself and not for the glory of God. The reason God hears and God blesses in this case is because it was about God's glory and delivering us through this child. There was something bigger. And we get so myopic and so focused on the little minuscule and minutia of our day-to-day -day life. And, and we think, listen, you're important and what goes on in your life is important, but it's not more important than what God is doing. It's not. And we live in such a vacuum where we have lost engagement with one another and the bigger picture of the activity of God because we're connected through social media, but we have lost the social part of the media. We've lost the social aspect of who we are in Christ. We've lost the community part of what God has done through this promise. But Rebecca says, okay, there's a struggle here. I can feel, the, feel something going on. I've never been pregnant before, but I can feel something going on that doesn't seem like it might be right. I can remember when Christy was pregnant with our three kids Ladies, I don't know how you do it. I'm just going to be real with you. I do not know how you do it. How you carry that growing thing in you, excuse me, that growing person in, in you for nine months, the sleeplessness, the heartburn, the, just the discomfort, the, uh, I feel miserable. I don't know how you do it. But here's what I do know. It's kind of cool when they get to that size where you can start seeing like things push and move and everything. And there's this struggle going on. And Rebecca's like, what? what's happening to me? I, I think every pregnant woman has asked that question, by the way. <laughs> what is happening to me? 
And so she inquires of the Lord. She's followed the example that was set for her to inquire of the Lord. The Lord says, there are two nations, not, not two people. There are two nations, two distinct people, ethnic groups that are growing inside of you. Wow, that's quite the litter. And they're going to be separate from one another. And the older is going to serve the younger. That in and of itself is enough of an answer for me or why she was just uncomfortable. I, I, can, re, I can remember hearing, and I'm experiencing, hearing of the discomfort of one growing in there. Imagine two. And those things, you know, babies, they come out and they're all like tiny little kidney beans. Um, they're all wadded up and everything. Two of them? In that space? Of course they're fighting with each other. Of course there's some discomfort and some struggle. It's hard enough having one in there. And some ladies end up with like three, four, and the ones that go to like scientists and doctors to have like eight at a time, I, mm -mm. thankful God made me a man. <laughs> but the Lord says, you're not just having two babies. There are two nations so without without the technology of sonogram and ultrasound and the little uh uh heart monitor they can go in and they, they and you hear that baby's heartbeat the lord said there's two in there and it says and it was so that when time came and she delivered two babies were born people want to say god can't tell the future there are two. God blesses Isaac and Rebekah with two sons. And then we see in the last few verses where Esau sells his birthright. <laughs> Esau, the one favored by Isaac, the hunter of the group, the, the one that goes out to the field, it says that Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed the taste of wild game. So, so Esau is this big, burly, red, hairy man. And he comes out. They name him Esau because he comes out and he's a furry baby. It's like a little furry meatloaf coming out there because, you know, meatloaves are red and all that stuff. Um, and, and so now he's grown. He's kind of burly. Here's what I'm thinking. I'm picturing he fits in well in West Georgia. Kind of a big, burly, redheaded guy that likes to hunt. I mean, that's just, that's just where he's, he's at home. He, he probably has a nice little house over in like you know, uh, on the other side of Palmetto, like in that part of Fulton County that there's nothing but pine trees. That's where he lives. He's out there shooting stuff. Now there's Jacob. It says that Rebecca favored and loved Jacob because he was actually a lot more like his dad. He stayed at home. He was looking to take on the herds just like his father and his grandfather had. He was calculating his success within the family and building and growing. He's a calculating guy. And so here comes Esau. He's, he's, he's famished from all the labor that he's done into search. I, I'm, I'm picturing that Esau was an actual hunter, that he took time to track what he was hunting and go after it. And not like what we call hunters that are people that just kind of sit there and wait for something to show up. That's not hunting, that's waiting. If you go to the doctor's office and you sit in a chair for two hours, you say, oh man, I was just waiting for the doctor to call my name. But if you go out in the woods and sit, wait for a deer, you're like, oh, I'm hunting that deer. No, you're not, you're waiting on it. 
And he comes in famished. And there's Jacob fixing this stew. That smells good, brother. What you got there? A little stew. Why don't you dip me out a bowl of it? I am famished. See, Jacob's the younger brother. And, and as a younger brother, I can speak with some authority on this. We like to mess with people. We like to use things to our advantage, especially with siblings. Okay? You want some of the stew? It'll cost you your birthright. My birthright. What good is a birthright going to do me? I am so famished, I'm literally about to die. Okay? Then sell it to me, and you can have the stew. Fine, it's yours. Now, I know we, we like to say, man, Joseph, Jacob, you are just a scheming little crook. You're this weasel. But look at how flippant Esau is with the birthright. The birthright was the place of privilege, the place of priority for the family. It later became codified in Jewish law in Deuteronomy chapter 23 and 24 that if you were the firstborn, your birthright was that you got a double portion of the inheritance. So my family, there were three of us. That mean that my oldest sister gets half of everything my parents have and my middle sister and I only get a fourth of what's there because the birthright was the bigger portion and Esau just said I'm not worried about it I would rather have some of this red stuff than my place in the family I would rather trade what is rightfully my inheritance to satisfy a momentary physical appetite he sells the birthright. The Bible says there in chapter 25, verse 34, so Esau despised his birthright. Didn't just sell it, didn't just pawn it off, despised it. This is the same root word that Jesus uses when he talks about the parable of the prodigal son. And the younger son that went to the father and said, you know what? I'm tired of living here, dad. I want what's mine so that I can get out of here. It is that same glib attitude towards this life that's here. I don't care about it. I want the momentary physical fulfillment. And so I'm going to sell, despise, give up the birthright. (laughs) So what do we do with all this? What's the point of this passage? How do you and I in 2019 look at this and say, okay, Abraham's gone. He had an extra wife and he had all these kids. And now Isaac and Jacob uh, and, and Esau are in the picture. What do we do with this? Well, I believe that this passage shows us very, something very simple. And this is that faith is essential and faithfulness perseveres through prayer. Faith is essential and faithfulness perseveres through prayer. Let me show you what I mean by that. This is how we're going to connect this. Because we go to the life of Isaac and we see something happen in him. He is at the point of a major, major decision, uh, excuse me, a major, major uh, need. He has to have children. 
He knows, and he's been, he's, been, he's been taught and discipled by his father for 40, 50, 60 years now that this promise God made that our family would be exceedingly great. And I believe Isaac even, put, even heard through the promise that was given to Eve that through the woman that the seed would come that would crush the head of the serpent. I believe that Isaac knew all this, and I believe that Isaac took that to heart. And what did Isaac do? Verse 21 says that he prayed because he knew that God was the only one that could do something in this case. His wife was childless. Where there is no child, there is no generation to continue. Where there is no generation to continue, there is no link, no line to that redeemer, that one that would come. And Isaac understood that God is faithful. And he demonstrated his faithfulness by prayer. And it makes me question, it makes me wonder, okay, where does that leave us? What, 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 how do we engage prayerfulness? How, how do we engage a world that has a strong need when it comes to prayer? Here's connection point number one. Prayerlessness is pride's way of communicating that God's hand is optional. Prayerlessness is a function of pride. And it is a function that says, you know what, God, I think you're out there somewhere, but I got this. I don't need your hand. I can do this myself. Prayerlessness is a statement that says, you know what, God probably could act, but I don't need him to act because I'm good enough on my own. Prayerlessness is a function of pride. You know, it's easy for us to look at um, celebrities and easy for us to look at, um, as, as we've talked about in, in, in recent weeks, it's easiest for us to look at those that give that momentary hand up to God, but everything else about their life demonstrates that there's no activity of God in their life. And it's harder for us to go reflexive and look back in the mirror and ask ourselves, do I really trust the hand of God every single day? Do, do I really take strides and make measure in order to have the hand of God carrying me? Because let's be honest, we want to be self-sufficient. We want to be able to do things for ourselves. We, we, we want to be able to, to go here and to stay there and stay there and to do this and to have that and to provide this. We, we want to have all these things. And so it's easy for us just to kind of put the, the God is great, God is good, let us thank you for our food prayer on things and, and act as though that has covered our every need. There is nothing in your life that is too small for God's attention. There is nothing in your life that is too small for God's attention. You're, he's not going to get bored with you coming. God, I have to go to work again today. And I sit beside, making sure I'm not going to use somebody's name in here. I sit beside Tina. There's not a Tina in here, I hope. <laughs> And Tina might be the most annoying person I've ever met. 
please keep me from slapping her today. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you have a Tina in your office, in your workplace. God's not gonna get tired of you praying that prayer every day because what God's gonna do is show you his grace and his mercy to where as you pray for Tina on the negative, you start praying for Tina on the positive. Lord, yesterday I had this conversation with Tina. Help me to point her to you because I didn't slap her last week. Thank you, Lord, for it. You start seeing the restraint. He doesn't get tired. Just a few minutes ago, I was sitting right over here and, and, and my daughter, she's in preschool and she's learning to write some words and she's learning to, and, and for the last several weeks, we'll find, I mean, for the last three years, if there's a piece of paper, she's going to write or color something on it. We can have a notepad that we use for like grocery lists or whatever else, and she'll have colored or drawn on every single page in the pad just, and we have to go and like make lists and notes around it. A lot of times it's just a bunch of random letters just scribbled together. It's good handwriting practice for and everything. Just a few minutes ago, she was showing me where she's writing in one of her friend's names. She spelled it all by herself and she spelled it right. I mean, it's Willa. It's not a terribly difficult name, but she sounded out and she spelled it herself. I can't tell you how many times in the last three weeks she's come to me with all of these letters and all of these names and all these words just to show me, I don't get tired of that. I don't get tired of that. I, you know, in the moment, I'm, thinking, I'm trying to worship here, but you know, oh, that's good, you spelled her name right. And, and, and she's asking me during the choir song, Daddy, what's this word? What's this? She had wrote it. That's, that's not a profound word, it. Stephen King had a movie, a book about it. I mean, it. We use it a hundred times a day, I'm sure. But she was so proud to show me that she was able to write it on a back of an old bulletin that Christy had given her before the service started. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm getting ready to tell these people about prayerlessness and, and, and how we can show that God's hand is optional by, by going through periods of prayerlessness in our life, willingly going through periods of prayerlessness. But God is just as excited about us showing him the word it and saying, Lord, look, look. Because he wants us to know that he loves us, he cares about us. And whether it's something huge like childlessness or financial despair or relationships that's in the crumbles or it on the back of a bulletin, our prayers show that we need God every day. To quote the great, the great poet M.C. Hammer, we got to pray just to make it today. That's why we pray. Yeah, we pray. So let me ask you a question. Where do you go to find God? Where do I go to find God? Isaac, at this point, knows that there is only one who can do something about the condition where he finds himself. And so he has to go to God. He knew the physical way that babies came into the earth. He knew all that. He had been practicing that, but still no baby. He knew he had to go to God. So where do I go to find God? See, notice with me, if you will, over there in verse 11. 
It says that after Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac who lived near Be'er Lahai Roai. The well where it was evident that God's presence dwelled. And Isaac didn't just know, hey, God showed up at this point and this time and helped out um, Hagar before I was ever in the picture. He said, I know this is a place where God sees and God hears. So he made his dwelling there. He went there and he bought it. He went there and said, I am placing my tent. I am placing everything I have to the closest point where I know that God is real. And some of us go through our weeks and we think, well, the only place I go to find God is at the church. And I want you here. I'm glad you're here. I hope you have a time in one of our Sunday Bible studies. But if you're coming here as your only place to find God, you've missed it. You've completely missed it. Look, if you're a first-time visitor, please don't take that as a harsh statement. I want you to know my heart because I want you to be able to find God here. But you know what? God isn't confined to these bricks and these pews and this speaker and, and these instruments and these musicians and these singers. God is not confined to this place. You don't go to the church to find God. You go to church to worship because you already have God. You've been with God all week. You've been walking with him because when you came to faith in Christ, you were given God himself in the Holy Spirit to dwell within you so that everywhere you go, you have the power and the presence of God. But there is something to be said about having that protected and carved out time and space where you know I am with God. For me, I was thinking about it this morning. For me, it is this end of the couch in the mornings. And it didn't matter. In our previous house, it was still this end of the couch and it was a different couch. Over here, where I'm leaning up against this arm and I have time in the word and in prayer. It's there. And I take that time seriously and and I'll be real with you. There are times when I go through a series of prayerlessness because things are, it's easy to be prayerless when things are going easy. It's usually when we're flat on our back because the world's not just down, life's not just down that we say, oh, I really need to pray now. But when we're up high on the mountain, we're up here, oh, we're doing good. We're seeing everything for 100 miles. You know, it's easy to not pray when we're on the, air, the airplane view. But I know that place. And, and I could tell you morning after morning, week after week over the last eight, nine years that that place has been kind of a carved out thing. I don't care what couch is. We can sell this couch. Get another. That's going to be the place. So where do you go? Where is it that when you know that you need to sense God's presence the most clearly, the most directly, you have, I can, I'm there, and that's where God is going to show me his face, his will, his word. Where is that place? Make your dwelling there. Camp out there. Make it the well at Be'er Lahai Make it that place where you stake everything and you protect it and you've invested yourself because prayerlessness is not an excuse for not having a place to go. Prayerlessness is an excuse for why you think you've got it. Find that place. Protect it. And let me encourage you with this as as we kind of wrap up here. The third one. Your birthright is secure. Okay? 
your, your birthright is secure. We're, we're talking about this in our college Sunday school class right now. Um, we're, we're talking about eternal life and uh, a couple of questions we've been hashing out over the last couple of weeks is, uh, one, the present, how can, I, how can I know right now that I'm saved? And then the, the future, how, how secure is my salvation? And, and just let, let, me, let me just tell you just kind of in a nutshell here what's going on. Esau is flippant in his regard to the birthright. And the book of Hebrews chapter 12 actually condemns him as being a godless and immoral person because of this. And, and, and the author of Hebrews brings us this question and says, don't let there be that type of person among you in your fellowship that is so godless and immoral as regards to the birthright. But I want you to know, if you are born again, Jesus says to the Nicodemus in John chapter three, you wanna see the kingdom of God? You wanna see the kingdom of heaven? You've gotta be born from above. You have to be born again. If you have had that second birth, your birthright is secure because that is not a birth of flesh and blood. That is a birth of the spirit that is in you. And it is secure because God says that my Holy Spirit will seal you, seal you. Your birthright is secure, but just because it's secure doesn't mean that we have the license and the liberty to be flippant with it, to chase after every physical pleasure of this world, seeking something to bring us this emotional high, this spiritual high, this physical high, something to fill in this void that only God himself can fill. It is secure, but it is to be protected, not treated flippantly. And maybe you this morning are looking at this passage of Scripture and said, you know what, I have sought to trade what I have in Christ for a bowl of stew. In that relationship, in that bottle, in that job, in that banking account. Oh, it takes on a whole lot of forms. It creeps in and it's tempting and it's luring. And it's deceiving. It is a sugar-coated poison apple offered to us as a viable substitute for what Christ has done for us. And that temptation, it looks good and we reach out because at this moment, this will satisfy and this will fulfill, but ultimately it fails. Your birthright is secure. Treat it as secure.